there was a really cool koan uh, in Zen called Seijo and her soul are separate, or Seijo and her soul separate. Uh, it references an old Chinese story that goes something like this, and it's told different ways, but essentially there was a, a village, and uh, within this village, uh, a man had one daughter who passed away at some point, and so his um, second daughter was Sei, or Seijo, and as she was growing up, uh, this man had a, a cousin, and they would joke that Seijo got along with the cousin so well that when they became older, um, they would be married. And although it was a joke, uh, apparently Seijo and this young man actually fell in love and um, so it goes. <laughs> and uh, at some point the father, who didn't know this, I guess, it was kind of like, I don't know, unknown in the story somehow, but the father uh, announced to his daughter who she was going to marry and it wasn't him. And of course she was heartbroken. And um, the, the, the person she was in love with, his name was uh, Ochu, I think. Is that right, Ochu? <laughs> I think it's Ochu. Um, Ochu was so upset with this announcement that his beloved was going to be married to someone else that he just, he just took off. He's like, I'm out of here. So he got on a boat and left. And there's a couple of different ways the story is told that's interesting in the divergence. One is he got on the boat and he was on it for a few days before he realized that Seijo was also on the boat. She'd also left. Um, and of course they were happy to see each other and started a new life. The other one is he gets on a boat, much been, must've been a much smaller boat, and he was traveling down the river and then he saw Seijo running down the shore, waving him down. And he was so delighted that she wanted to come with him. She got in the boat <clears throat> and they went and lived their life and had children and so forth. Uh, but at some point, Seijo mentioned to Ochu that she missed her father, that she felt, um, felt like she really needed to go back and apologize to him for leaving and um, discounting his wish and, and all of it. And uh, Ochu agreed that that would be a good idea. So they decided to journey back together to, to her village that she grew up in and um, try to make repairs with her father. For whatever reason, when they arrived at the village, they decided to let Seijo stay in the boat and let uh, Ochu go meet the father first and just kind of let him know what's happening. And uh, so he met the father and he said, yeah, I've been with Seijo for these years and we've had children and started a family. And the father was like, just didn't even understand what he was saying. He said, what, what are you talking about? Seijo, who, who's this woman you're talking about? Because Seijo is in bed. She's been in bed for years since you left. She's not left bed. She hasn't talked either. She's just not herself. We don't know what, why. No one knows what's wrong with her, but she's just been laying in bed. And uh, Ochu assured him that no, she lived with me and we had children and she's in the boat. I'm going to go get her. Um, and then the story kind of sort of leaves the father and, and sort of Ochu out of it from, from here on. Um, what happens is Seijo gets out of the boat and also Seijo gets out of the bed. She kind of heard this conversation from the other room. 
um, or her father went in and said something to her, her sleeping, you know, body. Uh, but she gets out of bed and she's walking from the boat and then they meet each other and they become one. And the koan is, um, Seijo and her soul are separate, which is the true one, which one is real, which one is her true nature. There's a lot of ways to ask the question. This is such a beautiful koan. It's so powerful in it. Um, I've heard it interpreted different ways, uh, um, very powerful ways, actually. It, it has some um, unique qualities uh, in that very few Zen koans are about women, marriage, um, romantic love, things like that. Uh, it's a very feminine koan. It, it takes place deep within the feminine landscape. Um, but it also points to this fundamental um, issue that we address when we meet this way, when we inquire, when we engage the awakening process. And that fundamental issue is an issue of identity. What is the analogy of that shell of a person laying in bed all those years while the other part of her went and lived a life that was rich and um, human and all the rest? Those two components, those two aspects are, are within all of us. How do we separate ourselves? How did we separate ourselves? Or did we? How did that happen? How did we find... How do we discover that there's a part of us that is unconscious, that goes unconscious? Um, we all know the feeling of having competing agendas. We all know the feeling of self-sabotage. We all know the feeling of surprising ourselves, finding places in us that we didn't even know existed or felt very foreign to us for a time. All of these are really addressed with this koan. These are this koan so poignantly points to um, how that not only can happen, but how it does happen. It happens with every human and it's kind of a function of mind identification or the way the mind, the complexity of the mind can, can create these identities um, and set them opposed to one another at times. There's so many ways to approach this. Um, you could say the father and his wishes uh, represent duty or represent the external influence on your formation of identity as you grow up, who you should be, what you should do, what you should value. And her and Ochu or her, her life away from her father and her, her village represents the, the, the sort of impulse of, uh, of emotion of what's immediate, what's what makes sense right now, because that's, that's where your heart is. Um, the intimate, and we all know the feeling of having those out of balance, of having the sense of what I think I should be doing, or even my framework of what should be happening based on all of the conditioning, the conversations, the impressioning, the emotional landscape that I inherited from my, my family, from all my encounters with other humans, and just some, some instinct that just says, um, 
this is what feels natural to me right now. What I think we've, where we find ourselves when we start to approach awakening is that the first case is much more prominent in us. The first case, the, the, the sense of, um, I called it duty, but it's, it's more like a sense of having to live up to some framework we've developed and hobbled together through all kinds of experiences, including traumas. Um, that, that's really where we're kind of holding our identity, um, trying to hold our identity together. And we are a kind of hungry ghost or a sleeping ghost. We're that ghost in bed. We're a shell of ourself in that world. Um, and then we wake up and we enter this, this space of um, freedom. We enter this space of spontaneity. We enter this space of trusting ourselves finally, trusting just the flow of life right now as it is without second guessing and doubting and doubting and doubting and doubting. That's the immediate exuberance after awakening. Um, and then we come into contact with the, uh, the deeper emotion structures and so forth, the emotion body. Um, and we start to really live. That's the life she lived um, with her beloved and her children and so forth. But there was still a sense of division there. That, that, that's what's interesting about the story. She still felt something wasn't quite... Um, right. There was still something else to integrate. Uh, and that instinct, um, it, at least in the awakening process, uh, is critical to, to sort of keep, keep looking. Because I think a lot of people uh, in this space start to feel like, oh, okay, now I, I can finally live my life. I can finally live my life. I can finally carry out my wishes and my dreams. And there's still a self-centeredness there. Um, this is where Buddhism is beautifully poignant in pointing us beyond the self um, because that can become a big obstruction. Even with in cases where people have some significant realization, we can start to really try to reify a self or my life or my life as I know it. Um, and it's the same issue. It's the issue of fear. It's the issue of moving beyond identity. But so had the instinct to actually go deeper and investigate the nature of identity itself. Where had that fundamental split happened? So you could say this is where she goes back to, I'm, I'm obviously uh, putting a lot on this, but uh, there's something in this koan, I think, that points to this very beautifully. She goes back to investigate where the matter of identity came into play in the first place. Yeah. Um, how did, how did that fundamental split happen? What makes it possible for us to go in opposition to ourselves? What makes it possible for us to go unconscious at all? What makes it possible for us to have competing agendas? What makes it possible for us to self-sabotage? What makes it possible for us to lie to ourselves? What makes it possible for us to feel pretty you know, intuitively that, that this self-centeredness is, is actually natural? Like it's pretty deeply rooted in us. It's not the most intuitive but it's, it's pretty, uh, has a pretty strong root and a deep root, that feeling of um, identity with, with my own humanness, let's say. And talk, when I talk in this way and I talk at this depth, um, there's a risk of this becoming um, or being interpreted as um, anti-life or anti-human or nihilistic or something, but it's not. 
it's really just an investigation. We're really looking deeply, as deeply as we possibly can into what is the, what is the nature of the root of identity, the root of illusion and the root of suffering. And that this process is beautifully, um, it's not designed, but it's, it's just, it will bring you there. It will show you this if you're just open to it. Um, and it will bring you right to the crux of what identity is all about, what, what the sense of you is all about, what the sense of I am is all about. Um, and it will show, a non, show you a non-duality that's irrefutable, irreversible. Um, so the question, which one is the real one? Does it say or her soul? Is it your body or your soul, your body or your mind? Is it your instinct or is it your cognitive self? Is it your superego or is it your id? <laughs> is it the, the internal parent or the internal child? Which one's the real you? That question doesn't compel a um, conceptual answer, of course. It can at some level and that can be valuable, but the question can penetrate beyond all cognitive frameworks. So we start an investigation often, again, from the standpoint of that, um, that shell of a self that we feel we've been relegated to or stuck in, or at least I did. That's how it felt to me. It felt very narrow, narrow bandwidth of experience, confining, felt like struggle, frustration. It felt like contraction, um, just felt very uncomfortable. It felt very, uh, threatenable in a way, like, um, like always at risk. Uh, and it always needed to try to defend itself in a way, not necessarily in a conversation or an argument, but more like internally, like, like having to def like redefine itself to keep itself alive and propagating. This is what it feels like to be mind identified, or <laughs> that's what it felt like for me, at least. Um, it was very uncomfortable. So we find ourselves there first, you know, um, and we're kind of helpless. We're kind of like that, that's, you know, say that version of say that's in her, her bed who can't even speak, right? Uh, can't speak, hasn't moved, sort of lost something vital, completely lost something vital to just being alive, to being um, natural, to being authentic, to being spontaneous. It just seems to be missing. What is that? How is that? How is that possible, right? Um, and so, when we're completely identified with that, with that, that ghost, it's really, it's really a hopeless state. It's really a helpless feeling state. <clears throat> um, but in that helplessness, there's a, there's, that's where the gold coins are. You know, that's where the, um, the light shining through the crack can come in. And I don't know how that happens but it's a little different for everyone. For me, it was like reading a book, a certain book at the right time, a breakup, you know, these little events in your life, 
serendipitous events, tragic events. These are the, mm, they're the magic really, the miracles. The disruptions are the miracles in your life. So um, anyone who resonates with what I'm saying and understands that feeling of the hungry ghost or the ghost or the um, imposter feeling like really identified with the imposter, the doubtful one, the one that doesn't trust anything, including itself. Um, and yet it's still clinging to its own mental framework to solve the problem. I understand your pain. Um, been there for sure. Many of us have. And the, I have good and bad news. The, the good and bad news simultaneously is you can't solve it with thoughts. You can't do it. It just won't, it won't happen. <laughs> it's never going to happen. You won't solve it with knowledge or thoughts. My Zen teacher used to say, if you think you can, how do you say it? Um, if you think you can solve the problem of birth and death through logic, he's like, come into the Dokusan room and we'll mix it up. <laughs> um, so, so that's the good and bad news. Uh, the problem itself isn't going to get you out of the problem. It just isn't going to happen. Um, the, but, the, but the really good news is there's a whole lot that's beyond you. There's a whole lot that's beyond that framework. Um, you just can't see it through the lens of that framework. Doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not accessible. Doesn't mean it's not powerful. And it doesn't mean it won't break you open because it, it can and will. Um, just get clear on the problem. Get clear on the, the, um, the frustration of coming to the end of what you can do with your mind, with your thoughts, with your conceptual identity. Um, bathe in that frustration. Be okay with the fact that it's very frustrating. You can't control this. You can't control this. Um, be willing to feel it. Be willing to feel that dead end, that frustration, that stopping. And that's it. That's all I can tell you. But I, I, I will say that if you're clear on that, um, the light will shine through somehow, somewhere, in some way in your life. It just does. Uh, you'll meet the right person, you'll watch the right video, you'll read the right book, or the right set of circumstances will um, accumulate in your life. The, the right event, the right tragedy, the right disruption, the right confusion, something will just cause a system reset enough that you see through. Once you see through, you'll know where to go. You'll know how to orient. And that orientation is not through control and cognition that, that, that way, the way you move through, the way you move now is through um, surrender, through intuition, through vast curiosity. But the surrender part's important. It's, it's realizing you've come to the end of what you can do. You may not have come to the end of what you can do in your career or in your family or in your relationships or in your personal development or in health. That's not what I mean. But you've come to the end of what you can do to force the hand of reality to show you the truth, to wake you up. You just can't do it. It's impossible. Um, and that's good that it's impossible. So relish in that, um, even though 
you know, to the mind that wants to always turn everything into a problem it can solve or at least contemplate. Um, it just doesn't want to see this really, but, um, but see it anyway. And it will be you know, the best thing you've ever done. So that's my advice if you feel, find yourself in that, in the bed, you know, in the ghost, in the ghost body. Uh, living a life as a uh, feeling like a, an imposter, no matter what level of functioning you're at. You can be an extremely high functioning person, accomplishing a lot, having you know, all the, the sort of agreed upon successes in the social matrix, and you can still be feeling this suffering very intensely. That's what I'm talking about. You can also be, you know, almost non-functional. I've seen people everywhere on that spectrum wake up. So um, you're not excluded. You don't have a special case. You, there's no, you know, terminal uniqueness that's going to get you out of this. You, it's there for you, and the frustration and the angst and the suffering um, is your path. It's your entry point. That's the message. Now, if you've, uh, I don't know, crossed that first chasm, um, found yourself in a place that's more aligned with the, the say that went and lived the, the life that her heart yearned for, um, you've had a significant opening. Uh, life has clarified a lot for you. Um, you feel more at ease. You feel more spontaneous and in flow. Um, then I'm happy for you. It's great. But it's not the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, the heart itself, the mind, mind really gets bound up early on in this. But the heart can take you a long way. And so is life. I'm sorry, saves life in... Um, in the, in the, with her family away from the village and with her beloved and her children, um, saves life there, uh, represents the heart. And it's a much more vast, intimate ex existence experience. But even then, there was something in her that said, this isn't done yet. There's something more to look into. And this is what I would challenge actually anyone in that space um, to, to look into. Um, feel into it. Is there something compelling you to go a little deeper or a lot deeper? Is there something compelling you to investigate that last place you just haven't wanted to look? Maybe you're terrified or maybe you're just comfortable now. Um, but, but this process will direct you there one way or another. That's what it does. So don't fight it. I'm talking to a much smaller group of people now <laughs> because it's not, um, it's not super common that people try to fight it at this level, but some people definitely do. And it can be really uncomfortable and distorting and confusing for you and people around you. You may be even a teacher at this point and things like that because there's a lot of clarity here. Um, but, you know, Buddhism compels you uh, to do, to take a look deep into identity. Um, there are ways to do that. 
the Bahya Sutta has a beautiful uh, pointing into the sense fields in, in the sensing, only the sensing essentially, in the sound, only the sound, in the heard, only the heard, in the felt, only the felt. And this, I can't, I can't quote the sutta verbatim, but it essentially says this leads directly into the, the insight of anatta or no self. Um, the vastness, the intimacy, the openness, the clarity and spontaneity of um, deep realization is, is wonderful. Uh, but it doesn't hold a candle to what comes beyond the barrier of identity. There's no way to talk about that. It's completely off every map. Um, all of it goes down the drain in one way of speaking, but in the, the best way possible. It's only then will it really become clear what the fundamental distorting um, phenomenon was. And it was the identity itself. The, pers the, the paradigm of identity or the functioning of identity. Probably the, the closest you can come from a conceptual framework would be to understand it as personal identity. That there's a self apart from the world, that there's a self in opposition to other things, that there's a, even, a, even a conscious self, even a, a universal consciousness, a universal or, or a, an unbound awareness, something apart from um, that which it experiences. That's one way this plays out. Um, but what we're investigating is the, the nature of the most subtle fabric of the structure of anything. <laughs> it's hard to talk about this. I'll say it this way. When that self-structure drops, it's not uncommon for someone to say they were surprised that not only the self-structure dropped, but everything dropped. Every paradigm, every orientation, every um, every ability to, to formulate a view every ability to hold a position, including anything in regards to spirituality. This can surprise some people when the spirituality goes down the drain. It may have been your life, you know. Um, but what is found beyond that, hmm. Uh, I just can't, I really can't talk about it. I really can't actually say anything about it, uh, but you would never trade it for anything. And it's also like everything along the way with this process, as you sort of wake up to or open to or drop into more clarity, um, it's just obvious it's that way. There's not, it's not a choice. It's just how, how it is. But this last shift is almost like from how it is to seeing there is no way that how it is. There's no way that things are anymore. Um, it's absolute freedom, freedom in every dimension, freedom in every aspect. And interestingly here, freedom to, to inhabit the relative in a, in a more close, direct, um, granular way than was possible before, strangely.
very strangely. Um, but I think sometimes it gets, sometimes that gets confused with the case I was talking about before, which was waking up to sort of an experience of universality, an experience of uh, freedom, an experience of humanness, and actually not taking the next step or not, not, not addressing the fundamental, the real fundamental issue of identity. Sometimes that can be described as what I'm talking about, where it's like, it's about embodiment. It's about, you know, embodying your humanness and all that. That's great. Um, but don't ignore the process itself. Don't ignore what this process has, first of all, done for you already and where it's pointing, you know, um, very important. So because this stuff gets so subtle, it's easy to mistake different things people say, um, or mistake a, a little bit of a distorted view or description um, for one that really is beyond identity. And, I, and it's like, you know, the story's so great with Say and her soul that when, when they meet and they become one or they just merge, like that's the end of the story. <laughs> There's nothing left, right? That's it. Um, and then, and what remains is the question, at least in the koan, which one is the true soul? Which one is the true one? Which one is the real one? That question doesn't have to be answered. Inquiry only needs a, an objective or a result in the relative world with, when there's an identity experiencing it. When there's no identity experiencing it, a question can burn for eternity and it never needs to be answered. Infinite curiosity, infinite love, infinite fluidity with no stopping point and no starting point. It's almost like uh, before the, the dropping of that most fundamental identity structure, um, it's rather like uh, we've, there's like one thing we've always overlooked, no matter how we've looked, how we felt, how we've experienced, there's like one thing we've overlooked. <laughs> But that one thing is, it's not anything. But that not anything 
is everything for real. It's, it's, it's at the heart of everything. Um, and then it, then it becomes so poignant. It's the loudest thing in the room. It's all that's happening. It's all that's ever happening and nothing's ever happening. Everything becomes completely paradoxical as far as language is concerned. And in another way, there's no paradox because things are extremely simple. Sound is sound. There's, to even say it exists somewhere is just not right. It's not here, it's not there, it's not in between, it's not both. Um, in the ninth Oxford picture, it says, I see that which is creating and that which is destroying. That's the sound, it's creating and destroying. And it's primary to everything. All the processing that's coming afterward is static. Same with the sensation of your foot on the floor. The empty nature um, itself, in a way, is the only thing that's compelling anymore. But it doesn't exclude anything. It doesn't exclude anything. It doesn't exclude the textures of sensation. It doesn't even exclude the textures of thought, of illusion. It includes illusion. So even illusion turns out to be clarity in a very strange way. But in a very simple way, in a very obvious way. And you see that say and her soul were never separate in this way, because that essence, their essencelessness was always one. But not oneness. <laughs> it's not like a universality or oneness. It's, um, Essencelessness is the overlooked, you know, essencelessness. Is. It holds no position, no framework. It's not locked into any description or any iteration of reality. So that's infinite flexibility, infinite freedom. But it looks like this, the world. It looks like the th th parent three-dimensional world. And then it looks like the world that doesn't look three-dimensional anymore. And then it looks like formlessness. And then it looks like non-looking. There's no vantage point anymore. With the self-structured not there, the, there's no vantage point anymore. No limitation. No preferred position, including relative and absolute. Including actually illusion and awakening, illusion and nirvana. No preferred uh, position. 
So from here, everything is spontaneously liberating. In the 10th Oxfording picture, it says, I use no magic to extend my life. Before me, dead trees become alive. And that's really actually accurate because the, uh, um, the experience of animism or just everything being alive is very, very accurate. So dead and alive are, they're not really much of a distinction. <laughs> um, inert and alive, it doesn't really, there's no need to make those distinctions because the aliveness is just all of it. And the essencelessness is also.